Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out, if you would. We're going to be in two passages, and as you're doing that, I'm going to ask you some questions, so you're going to work out both sides of your brain this morning, okay? And uh, one thing I would like to do, the other day we passed out these baby bottles. This is our fundraiser that we're trying to help out First Option Care in Thomasville and Cairo. And uh, you, all, you all know this, year after year we do this. We fill these up with loose change, dollars, checks, whatever you want to get in there. And then you turn it back in. We have about a month to do this. We ran out of these last time, so we want to offer these again. I have a few guys coming up, if you would, gentlemen. So if you would like one of these bottles or you want a second one, if you just raise your hand, they're going to pass these out to you this morning. Okay, just raise them up nice and high. I know we had a few. If you want one or you want a second one, there's one over here. There's one out here. Two over here on the right side. Three over here on the right side. Okay, just raise them up nice and high. Anybody? Oh, Miss Charlene. Yep. All right. Quite a few. Thank you, guys. While they're doing that as well, um, I would like to, I mean, you can order this book anytime you like, but I'm just going to say the sooner you do it, the better. And pretty soon I'm going to stop talking about it. But I just, there's still a few, I think, that have not realized the resource that you have in this, if you have made this available. So at this point, we've already placed our order, and there's, there's really no benefit to us ordering it for you. Just go on Amazon, order, and get about $19 for this book on Amazon. It's only a few dollars more than what we got. And this is a daily devotion. What it does is it forces us to ask those questions we were talking about earlier. And, but that's not the only thing it does. So it has five, um, those of you who have been doing this with me, you know this already, but, um, and I do a week ahead because I'm you know, preparing the message for the following week, but... So far, every week has had a really insightful list of questions. The first week was questions to know whether I needed revival. Three pages of that. This week coming up is, you'll have an opportunity to go through, is another list of questions, pride versus humility. And just really, really insightful into the state of our hearts, into what we need to hear. So I hope you make yourself available to that. Uh, of course, as usual, if you're visiting with us, inside the bulletin here is our Sunday morning outline, and you can fill it in, take notes as well. There's plenty that will be said from the Word of God this morning that is not written uh, inside of this. And then on the back, I do want to remind you one more big event we have coming up is our Hope for the Journey Teachers Conference coming up this coming Friday evening and all day Saturday. That is free of charge, but we need you to register. So there is a, you guessed it, QR code right there on the back of your bulletin. So have fun pointing your camera at that. Register, doesn't cost anything, but we do need to know that you're coming, so we make sure we have enough materials for you. And what this is, is the first time we've done this at our church. It is for anybody that's involved in children's work, children's ministry, dealing with children. You have any kind of a heart for, whether it be your own children, other people's children, in helping kids deal with living in the broken world that we live in. So that... Being around kids doesn't end up being one of those things that you never want to do, all right? Or you can't wait till it's over, that type of deal. You can actually kind of understand a little bit of what they're going through and where they're coming from in this. And they even give you some tools from what I've heard, some great tools on how to handle that. And we have tons of good referrals on this. Can't wait myself to get into it. That's this Friday and Saturday, but please take that code or call the church office or Meg Herring and Jenny Connell. They can help you register for that as well. They're heading, heading that up this week. Okay, let's get into the passage this morning. We have two passages that I didn't tell you yet. James chapter 4 in your right hand, if you're right-handed. If you're left-handed, you can reverse this order. But James chapter 4 in your right hand and Daniel chapter 5 in your left hand. James 4 and Daniel 5. 
This morning we're going to be dealing with the first step towards revival, humility. The first step towards revival, there is multiple passages in the scripture that proves that, that fact right there in the title. We're not going to spend time doing that because there's so much else that we're going to get into this morning. Humility is always step number one on the road to revival, always. Matter of fact, it's step number one in any aspect of our relationship with God. As a believer this morning, which is mainly who we're talking to in the case of revival, you cannot be revived if you were never alive at one point. Maybe that means this morning that you need to be saved, and I hope today will be the day of salvation. We'll give you an opportunity, not that you have to wait till then. We'll give you an opportunity to cry out the Lord uh, at the end of the service during the invitation time. We'll help, we can help show you from the scriptures, and we can lead you in that. It has to be your words, has to be your heart and your cry, but we can guide you in that. And we'll have a, a man or a woman, depending on who comes forward, to uh, help you with those things, show you from the scriptures how you can be saved. But primarily, the main emphasis of the, of the topic this morning is for those who need revival, those in God's family already. And you need revival, you need possibly to humble yourself. You say, well, how do I know? Well, hopefully by the end of the message you'll know whether you do or not. You know, you and I can tell what the world thinks about things normally by how they portray it, right? And so we see, um, we see some of that through maybe people that we hang around or when we're out in the local public businesses or schools or things that are run by people that are not saved, they're not regenerate, they're not living for God at all. They are, they're just, well, I hate to say a child of the devil, but that's what they are. They, you're either living under God's kingdom or the devil's kingdom, one or the other. And so there is no in-between there. There is no just a bunch of good people category. There's, that's not there. So we can tell what the world thinks by hum, by, about humility by how they portray it, and, and we see probably most of our portrayals in the media, social media maybe, television, internet, streaming services. I mean, it's, it's everywhere now, right? We are in a, a media-driven society. And think about humility. When I say the word humility, in, in as far as referring to what you've seen or heard about it, and just totally take out what you heard behind the pulpit. Out in real life, what comes to mind? I, to me, I'll tell you what comes to mind to me, like a Buddhist monk way out in the mountains of Tibet, just living a humble life, um, you know, we all look at that and say, oh, how humble, but not one person would ever want to do that. It's never looked on as favorable, right? Uh, we think of maybe a backward or an awkward person in society. Oh, well, they're just kind of humble, you know, or maybe an introvert or a poor person. We rarely see a wealthy person portrayed as humble in the world. But what is praised and admired in society? Well, pride self-confidence, wealth, talent, outstanding performances, glitter, wow. Look at me. So from a just looking at it standpoint, why in the world would anyone want to be humble? There's seemingly, if you take what God says out, no benefits to it whatsoever. But God actually, his, his truth applies inside the church, outside the church, throughout all ages, God actually has held the truth in this to where there are a ton of benefits in being humble. And that's not at all why we would want to be humble this morning, but it is worth noting, and we'll see that throughout the week and even on your fellowship groups. 
Sometimes maybe to get a good picture, we can benefit by kind of reverse engineering. We can benefit by looking at something backwards. What would be the downsides of not being humble? I mean, the world would tell us there's plenty of downsides to not being self-confident and, and out there and the life of the party, plenty of downsides to not being that. I mean, we all want to be that way, right? We all want to be loved and adored and everybody like us and want to hang out with us and we have to turn down all the people that want to be around us and all the people want to give us money and success and all this. Oh, wow, you know. What would be the downsides of not being humble, like God says? Well, if you aren't humble you're going to miss God's purpose in your life. Think that through. If you're not humble, if you don't humble yourself, if I don't humble myself, I will miss God's purpose in my life. So no matter how good I think it gets down here on this earth, when this earth time for me ends and real life starts, real eternity starts for me, it's really not going to matter in that sense. And if I lived my whole life without ever seeing my purpose, without ever living out God's purpose for me, what a waste, right? If you're not humble, you'll miss your purpose. If you're not humble, well, you'll miss salvation. Proud people don't get saved. Pride is blinding. We see this over and over again. Proud people cannot see their need to be saved. You cannot be saved just because you want to go to heaven. You have to humble yourself. You have to see the need that you have for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, if you aren't humble, you'll miss revival. Well, it affects us right here. You could go through 12 weeks of this and never, ever realize that anything was amiss in your heart. Why? The blindness of your pride. I'm good. I mean, yeah, I do a few bad things. I mean, come on. But I'm good. Humility. And to be clear, if you aren't humble, everything in your life, now, eternally, it all goes wrong. All of it. Let's look in the Word, if you would. Word, if you would. Daniel chapter 5. And we're going to see a man greatly affected by pride. He's in Daniel chapter 5. This man is a king. And by every right in humanity and earthly wisdom and viewpoint of the world, he has every right to be proud king of one of, if not the most powerful nation in the world at that time. He is the top dog, makes all the decisions, spends all the money, says yes to whatever he wants to say yes to, says no to whatever he wants to say no to, really does not have any of the restrictions that you and I would consider we have in American society, even though we have a lot of freedom. He is exponentially greater in that freedom and liberty to live his life however he wants to. We're in Daniel chapter 5, and we step into the life of Daniel. He's now an adult well into years, and King Belshazzar is the king. King Belshazzar, you, you've, many of you have heard the story, but just to give you a clear picture of what's going on, um, he had a father named Nebuchadnezzar. His father suffered the results of pride, and now he has a son, Belshazzar, who is following in his footsteps. Belshazzar here in our text is putting on a big party, and we're going to jump into probably verse 20 here in just a minute, but I want to give you some background. He's putting on a huge party, and this party includes tons of food and alcohol. As you would expect, when you mix alcohol into a feast, all sorts of things happen, and they're not prayer meetings. 
all sorts of debauchery, all sorts of fleshliness. I mean, have you ever heard of anybody becoming more spiritual by drinking alcohol? Of course we haven't. Normally, well, every time I've ever heard of, but I've never drank alcohol, so I can't speak 100%, but every time I've ever heard of it, it always leads to the flesh, okay? This king, specifically in verse number two, says, while he tasted the wine, he did something. He made a decision. The food is there, the alcohol is flowing, he's drinking wine, and he makes a decision, hey, you know, there's a big pile of treasure that we stole from the temple, the Jerusalem temple that we conquered, by the way. We conquered them. We have all of the booty left over from that. Send somebody over there and bring it in here, and we're going to use it for our feast. We're going to take the cups and the plates and all of the instruments. He didn't even know what it was used for, but it was used in that temple as far as he knew. Bring it over here. We're going to use it. And that's exactly what he did. They brought it over. And as they're drinking their alcohol, as they're feasting and gorging themselves, they, of course, you know, the more alcohol they drank, the, the lower their inhibitions came. And they were more and more willing to cross certain lines that maybe they wouldn't have crossed before. You know, alcohol doesn't make you bad. It just lowers the walls that was keeping the bad in before. Now who you really are starts coming out. Who you really are, you don't really have that filter anymore. The filter gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And the real you starts to come out, the, the one that you were protecting from everybody outside of yourself, the one that maybe you were embarrassed or ashamed of. Alcohol just kind of fuels that. So the king, in his arrogance, he uses these instruments, ordained, by the way, for the worship of the one who created him. And he's going to cheapen it down to a, a trite little episode, a little party. He wants to, thinks it's just cool that he can, in his power, he can make decisions like that. Even the instruments given to the almighty God. I'm going to drink out of that. And he does. On top of that, they take it a step further. Not just the eating and drinking out of these instruments used for the consecration and the worship of Almighty God, His Creator, but now they're going to reverse it and they're going to start praising gods of gold, silver, precious stone, gods that are made uh, out, of, out of wood and idols and statues. They're going to start praising those gods as if they could be praised, as if they were real at all. And you know the, you know the tale. You've heard this part of it. As they're partying, a hand appears on the wall and begins to write, Mini, Mini, Tico, Eupharsin. Verse 25 of chapter 5. And the, the smile, we know it immediately leaves the king's face. Mr. Party is now arrested as Almighty God steps onto the scene and is writing on the wall. The Bible says his face, he was troubled and his knees knocked, his loins were loosed could not control his legs, smacking back and forth. Mr. I can make any decision I want and nobody can tell me what to do, now was scared. The Bible says he cries out. He shouts out orders to have the wise men of Babylon come in. So he brings in the astrologers, the soothsayers, the Chaldeans. He offers rewards to, the, to anyone that can interpret uh, what the hand was writing on the wall. I mean, by the way, that's what you have to do in heathen kingdoms. You have to bribe everybody to do what you want. Nobody does things just because they love the Lord or they want to do the right thing. Of course, nobody knew what it meant, but the queen hears about it. Interestingly enough, the queen was not a part of this party. It's all his concubines were in there. 
She hears about this and she comes in to tell her husband about a man she had heard of, a man who had served his father, Nebuchadnezzar. And this man's name was Daniel. Verse 14 says, this, this Daniel, he, he had gained a good reputation for being one who possessed the spirit, little s, of the gods. This is how they viewed Daniel. So Daniel was brought in. He was, of course, promised the same reward, scarlet robe, gold chain about your neck. You'd be the third ruler in the kingdom. And what is, what is Daniel's view of that reward? I mean, he's just so Twitter-paid and besides himself, he can't believe he would be offered such a tremendous reward. But no. He says... Keep the reward. I have to think that maybe Daniel walks into this feast and sees the goblets and the plates, sees all the piles of food, the alcohol, hears the, maybe the, the praising of these false gods, and he says, I don't, I don't want any part of this. Daniel loved the Lord. That was very obvious. We know that of Daniel. Daniel had been instrumental in Nebuchadnezzar's life, Belshazzar's father influencing that. And Daniel begins to tell Belshazzar about his dad. He says, you know, I knew your dad. And here's what happened to your dad. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 20, Daniel is telling the story. It says, but when his, and this is Nebuchadnezzar, when his, your dad's heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Hey, you know what? Your dad was lifted up in pride as well. He was doing things he never should have been doing, saying things he never should have been saying. He had no right to say, no position to say, and God took him from his throne. God judged him, judged him, Nebuchadnezzar, because of his pride. Made him, you know the story, he made him to be like a beast in the field. He, he, he became insane. His hair grew long, his nails grew long, he crawled around, he ate grass in a field. This was the king of the most powerful nation in the world at that time because he lifted himself up above Almighty God. But the Bible says in, we're, we're looking in chapter 4, if you're writing notes, chapter 4, verse 34, the Bible says when Nebuchadnezzar came to himself and he realized, realized that the Most High ruled in heaven and earth, there was a time when all of a sudden his eyes were open. I don't know what brought him to that. But there was a certain length of time that he went through this judgment of God, and now he could see how it really was. He could see God had humbled him like only God could. And he sees his pride. He sees who actually is in charge. He sees and benefits from the judgment of God. And God says his situation immediately changed. He was restored to his kingship. This is Nebuchadnezzar. He prays the God of heaven. He says this in verse 35, the God who does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, the same God that I blasphemed before, I now know this God does whatever he wants. He rules heaven. He rules the army of heaven. This was the king's best way he could praise Almighty God. But now go back to the feast. Here's Daniel standing in this drunken feast, talking to Belshazzar, and he warns Belshazzar, King you knew what happened to your dad, and you haven't learned from it either. You're walking in exactly the footsteps that he walked in. Come with me to Daniel chapter 5 and verse 22, and let's, let's just read this short account here. As Daniel speaks to him, he says, And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all of this. You knew everything that happened to your dad. You knew how he turned back to the Lord. You knew it. Verse 23, 
Instead, Belshazzar, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, thy concubines have drunk wine in them. Thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know. And I love this next phrase. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, in whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. I mean, the epitome of pride. The epitome of pride. You know, pride here, pride in some alcohol made the king willing to disrespect his creator in such an outrageous way. Um, pride here is seen as power. But pride is not power. Pride is weakness. Pride is weakness. There is no pride great enough to overcome God's judgment. God has shown that over and over again in history. Pride keeps us from learning the lessons just like this king did right in front of us. Humility, on the other hand, it's, it's when we see and believe the truth about God. We can see him clearly for who he is and how we stand in relation to him. Humility isn't degrading ourselves. It's not having low self-esteem. It's not putting ourselves in the dirt. We're worthless. Obviously, we're not worthless. But our worth is not self-worth. Our worth is seen through the eyes of a Savior, of a God who would send himself, his Son, to not just die, not just suffer a, a rough afternoon on the cross, but to take on the sin, the judgment, and the hell for each and every one of us so that we can simply humble ourselves, which we almost see as a crime sometimes, humble ourselves and come to him. Humility. Humility is the heart cry that says to God, God, I need you. That's the root of humility. God, I need you. God gives us a pretty clear picture of pride versus humility. Let's go to James chapter 4 now, and we'll, we'll start with the, that was all introduction. <laughs> Don't worry, the points aren't long, but they're good. Again, I don't know what to do with my clicker. Kidding me? There it is. Okay. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And for sake of time this morning, we're just going to kind of open this passage up and read a section at a time. Okay? James chapter 4, verse 1 through 10. No, I changed my mind. We're going to read that just so you have it in your mind. Here we go. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. <clears throat> ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. <clears throat> There's a lot in here. Pastor James, 
uh, we believe to be the Lord's brother. He's asking these questions right here in verse number one. He's asking these questions to this group of Hebrews. I don't personally believe that this entire book is speaking to those who are not saved, or it's speaking to just those who are saved, who are Christians. I believe it's, it's speaking to Hebrews in general. Many of them had professed faith in Christ, but I believe many have, have not. And we see that throughout. You know, faith without works is dead. It goes back and forth throughout, throughout the book. I really don't hold to what some men, they, they fall on one side or the other. Um, as is the case, I believe God's truth so many times applies to everybody. And I believe that to be the case here. James chapter 5, um, I'm sorry, James chapter 4, there's a typo there. James chapter 4, verse 1, he starts asking these questions to these Hebrews. We read in chapter 1, verse 1, these Hebrews who are scattered throughout the surrounding areas. And why were they scattered? They're scattered because the, the church was under persecution, yes. So that doesn't mean that every one of them was saved any more than it means that everybody who came from your family and entered these church doors is saved just because they walked in here with you. Okay, that, that's not the case. Obviously, we all know that. But he is talking to these Hebrews. They've been pushed out because of Christianity. They have some involvement with Christianity. And he says, he asks them this question. I think he's trying to get them to think. He asks them a rhetorical question because he doesn't answer it. He asks them a rhetorical question to get them to think, um, where does all this fighting and contention inside your group come from? Where, where does it come from? Where, who, is, who is at the result of all this? And he gives them a principle to really to chew on it. And he says, here's where it comes from, even of your lust that war in your members. Well, what is he talking about there? He, he points back to lust or this, this passionate desire that can overtake us. And he said, matter of fact, the word lust here, also translated in verse, uh, Luke 8, 14, as pleasures. So this is the idea of the lost condition of man, totally consumed with pleasing self. Now, we, we tend to think, I don't know about you, I guess I could speak for myself, I tend to think when I just think of pleasing self, I think it is totally, someone totally selfish. But this, this isn't, we're not talking about this haughty and proud person necessarily, although they're in that group. We're talking about the whole idea that pers- people who have not been saved, people who do not know the Lord as uh, Lord and Savior, they are living a self-consumed life. I mean, everything they are doing for, in the end, is for them. Whether Even stuff they give. If they don't see how it's going to benefit them in the end, how it's going to make them feel better, it's going to give them a, a better whatever in the future, it doesn't make sense to do it. Why? It's a self-driven life. It's a life of pride. And although we wouldn't necessarily think that as a negative thing, it is a negative thing. And it's the opposite of the child of God. He says, why, why are there, he's telling there's wars and fightings among you. Where's this all coming from? He says, it, it's coming from your lusts. The lusts that are warring in your members. The lusts that rage. You're just completely given over to it. He says, you lust and you have not, in verse 2. You desire to have and you cannot obtain. You fight and you war. This cycle of fighting for your desires, fighting for your dreams. And sometimes we can make this into this big positive thing. Where I'm just, I'm just doing whatever I have to do to succeed in life. He says, well, yeah, that's absolutely, you're, just, you're living according to your lusts. They had taken it to a whole new level. They were even willing to kill for it. If they can't get what they want, they'll take somebody out. If that person is standing in the way of what they want, they'll take them out. 
That was happening in this culture. It even goes so far in verse number 3. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. You know, many times we apply that to Christianity, right? And it is a broad principle that can be, but that's not what it's saying here. I mean, really? The first two verses are talking about Christians? Not so. He says, ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss. Well, what's that word amiss? I, I want to know. I mean, I've always kind of thought I knew what it meant, but it pays to study and look things up. Two words are used for the word amiss, the English word amiss, in the, in the Greek New Testament. One of them is referring to something that's like improper or harmful. This sense is a different word, it's kakos, and it refers to that which is evil. So they were actually asking for evil things. When they're asking amiss, they weren't just asking like the wrong prayer request. They were asking for evil things. We want to know exactly what that meant. Maybe they were, as they came out of a life of idolatry, uh, offering children and sacrifices on high places to pagan deities, uh, demonstrating with uh, immorally improper ways. I want to be careful, a mixed audience this morning, young kids, doing things that we would consider to be very de debauchful, very wicked things in the name of worshiping another god. Asking for an evil request was not at all out of the question for them. Many of them came out of that lifestyle where I'm going to put a curse on somebody or I'm going to, I'm going to ask this God to, to uh, take vengeance on my enemies or I'm going to, you know, many, many evil things. He says it right here. You're just stuck in this lifestyle. You're consumed with self. You're consumed with your own pleasures, living a life that is pleasing to you, a comfortable life, a life you enjoy. You're willing to kill to keep that life. You're willing to go and, and ask God, just like you would have with a pagan deity maybe, for something that is evil. And of course, God is not going to answer an evil request. Absolutely not. Pride is not the goal, though, for the child of God. Do we suffer with this battle? Uh, we do, to a point. It's never going to go away from us. But that's not the end goal for us any longer. We're not consumed with it. Humility is now the goal. We're still plagued with the presence of pride. It's, it's still going to be a battle. But now that you've come to Christ, your goals have changed. They've changed. And we see, actually, that I forgot my first point. <laughs> that was number one. Pride rules the heart of those who are without Christ. I'm talking. I didn't even give the first point. Pride rules the heart of those that are without Christ. And as we continue in this passage, here's my take on it. I think this passage is talking to unsaved people and it's talking to believers. It's showing us the danger of allowing things from the old life to remain in our life. Because this is how you acted before. This is how a lost person acts, consumed with pleasure, consumed with self. Don't bring that into Christianity. Number two, if you wrote that one down, now we talk about humility. We have three tenets of humility. We, we see how the lost world acts. The, the lost world has no, no priority for humility. It's very low. Um, that's never something they aspire to. But not so for the Christian. Our goals have changed. We see this as we continue on humility recognizes that I need God's grace. So as Pastor James is correcting them, he starts here in verse number 5. Verse number 5, chapter 4. 
says, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit, little, little s there, it's not the Holy Spirit, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, desires to envy. Do you, do you think it says that in vain? Do you think it's just empty words? Of course not. Verse 6, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. What, what is this whole idea of humility? It is the recognition of each and every one of us that we need God. We need specifically God's grace. So let me, let's look at the word grace here. Before we do that, I'm going to show you something about grace that, that I found as I was studying this. But one anonymous pastor said this, and I'm not saying he was remaining anonymous. I just don't know his name. Okay, so often, even those of us who are Christians can get caught in the trap of pride, saying things like, I'm not wrong. I don't need help. I won't move until someone else does. I already know what I need. I don't need to listen. Or like Cain, we simply say, I, don't, I want to do it my way. Revival can begin when we repent from these attitudes and say instead, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you. Specifically, Lord, I need your grace. This is exactly what he's saying in here. He's saying, listen, verse number five, the Bible speaks about this cycle of lust that you're in as a lost person. That is not to continue in your heart as a saved person. But even when you are lost, he says, you're, you're, you're fighting and you're warring to get your own way. You're living a life of pleasure. And even as wicked and spiteful as you were, God's grace was there. And you could never get too wicked, too spiteful to where God's grace would not be enough to save you. He's making this very, very... Um, True to them. You know, we think of, I don't know about you, but we think of when you say grace, a lot of times I think of, you know, saving grace. We're, we're saved by grace, right? And as if that's all it means, but it's much broader than that. Okay, kind of like to me, the word salvation. Whenever I see the word salvation in the Bible, my mind automatically says, oh, it's talking about getting saved. But it's not always. That's not what the word means. The word means deliverance. It means to be delivered. That's why you can go out and talk to someone who's not saved, and you can say, are you saved? And they could say something like this, oh yeah, I had this really bad car accident and I lived to tell about it. Well, they're not lying. They were delivered from that. That's what the word means. So in an attempt to move away from just the church word stereotypes, let's look at the word grace. Grace here is the word charis. It's used twice in this passage that we just read. It's also translated in other passages, favor, benefits, gifts, liberality being a liberal giver. This is what grace is. Grace is, of course, we know it as unmerited favor. We don't deserve this grace, but it is God's favor. It is a benefit from God. It is a gift from God. It is a, 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 um, an outpouring of liberality from God. He says, but he, verse 6, giveth more grace. He giveth more gifts. He giveth more benefits. He gives more favor. Wherefore he, God, saith, um, I'm sorry, no, it's not he, God. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace, gifts, benefits, favor to the humble. He giveth grace to the humble, and that's what each and every one of us had to do when we came to Christ to be saved. We had to humble ourselves, and God gave us favor as a result. 
He would not save us, although it didn't matter how wicked we were, if we legitimately came to Christ in humility, he would save our souls because he giveth more grace. You know, the larger our sin problem, the more grace is needed from God. You know, there's, a, there's an idea that all sins are the same. That's not so. That's not even biblical. In the eyes of God, every sinner, no matter how small or how big, needs to be saved. That's the level playing field. In the eyes of God, every sin is forgivable through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the level playing field. He's not at all saying that a murderer's over here and a liar's over here, and they're equal. And obviously, that's not the case. And that's not what he's saying here. No matter how big your sin, no matter how little your sin, you need God's grace. And no matter how big your sin, it will never be too big for God's grace. That's how you lived as a lost person. God is now wants to give you benefits, but he only gives you benefits and gifts and favor. He only gives you them if you'll humble yourself. And that wasn't just one time when you got saved. That is to continue throughout our Christian lives. This act, this walk, this life of humility, which is not favorable in the world. And when we digest and ingest worldly wisdom all the time, some of us multiple hours a day without even thinking about it, we'll accept this, that humility is not something to be sought after because that is what is taught to us all the time. God never runs out of grace. Never. He freely gives. Let this influence us today. We, we're familiar, many of us, with this passage in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, if you look at the verse before this, it talks about that grace that could never be overrun by wickedness. The grace that God never runs out of. And he says, wait a minute, so what do you say to this then? Should you as a believer just continue in sin because God's grace is just going to keep on coming? No, no. When does God's grace come? When we humble ourselves. Yes, God's grace will never be overrun by wickedness. It'll never, wickedness will never be so wicked that God's grace cannot cover it. But shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not. There was somebody who coined the phrase, I don't know who it was, cheap grace. And it is this very same idea that I've been given grace, so now I can live as I want. I'll be honest with you, I don't think that's the attitude of a believer. I think that's a verbal testimony of someone who does not know Jesus Christ. Doesn't understand the value of what Christ did for us on the cross. Because here's really what happens. If you maintain, you and I maintain this attitude of pride in verse number six, what does it say? God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. He resists the proud. Well, look at that phrase there. What does it mean to resist the proud? Well, the, the idea is that God opposes the proud. Actually, it takes it one step further. This word has the idea of being hostile, being rebellious. Now, God doesn't rebel, but it's a picture of that. You're being repelled from that. God doesn't just dislike your pride and my pride. He is repelled by it. God does not just uh, get irritated a little bit as we would when he doesn't like something about us. Not at all. God fights the proud. God opposes the proud. He resists the proud. But if we'll humble ourselves, if we'll humble ourselves he will give grace. He'll give benefits. 
He'll give favor. He'll give gifts and he'll give them liberally because that's your God. That's your God. Oh, you and I can choose before we're saved uh, to continue on that cycle and just be viciously consumed with ourself. And we can even still be influenced on it, even after we set down that, on that path with the Lord, the narrow way as we walk along towards eternity. We can be influenced by that old way of thinking, that old man that keeps wanting to keep, uh, keeps want to, keeps creeping up, there we go, keeps creeping up in our lives. And we have to keep putting him off. We have to keep dying to self. We have to keep reminding ourselves that that old man has been crucified. I'm not serving him any longer. I can reject that. Now I have a different goal in mind. We have to ask ourselves, is there some area in our lives that we've been unwilling to admit our need for God? Have we been unwilling to humble ourselves in, in an area? Has, has God shined his Holy Spirit flashlight on that this morning, and are we willing to do something about it? Number three, humility realizes that I must choose my allegiance or my allegiances. Humility realizes I must choose my allegiance. You know, humility... In, in many ways, as I study this, it's, it's a clarity. You're seeing things clearly. The opposite of pride. Worldly wisdom and, and worldly pride kind of say, kind of almost esteems itself and portrays itself as someone, the only one, that actually is seen clearly, right? But in reality, and we'll study this Wednesday night, in reality, the Bible says those people are blind. Those people are fools. But they think they're wise. And that's what pride does to us. When we allow pride to, to be a part of our lives again as believers, when we allow pride to remain in control of our lives as an unbeliever, it blinds us. We are not seeing clearly. You cannot be trusted. We go to the Word of God, and what does He tell us? What does He tell us? In verse number 7, He says, hey, because the fact that you need God, because... Um, he gives more grace because grace will be given to the humble. Because of all this, verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. We must choose a side. Why? We just saw it. Because God fights against the proud. Surely you would not want to be on that side. Two verses before that, he said, Know ye not that friendship with the world, all of you who are in this cycle, all of you who are living as the world, because some of you are in the world, and you can't help it. You are just following that lustful pleasure. Some of you are just behaving like the world. Know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You have become God's enemy. That's from God's standpoint. God says, you're my enemy. That's a sobering place to be. Why? Because pride. Pride. God fights against the proud, the enemies of God, but he freely gives good things, favor, liberally, gifts to the humble. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. That word submitted is the word um, hippotasso. It means to put myself under, to be subordinate. 
I see that, um, you know, in, in the military. We, we always think of military having such a hierarchy of positions and authorities placed over and under where it's seen very clear who's over and who's under. I mean, you know, it's all according to your rank. And, and uh, forgive me, I wasn't in the military, so if I butcher this, but, you know, there's certain people you have to salute to. There's certain people you have to obey because you are under, you're subordinate to them. This is the same idea. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Put yourself under his authority. To place yourself in that lower position. It's to, um, you and I have to choose who we're going to remain under. We have to. We know in Romans, Paul reminds us of this. He says, uh, to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey. Whoever you're obeying, that's who you're under authority of. So you can say whatever you want. You and I can convince ourselves of anything uh, that we want to convince ourselves of. And when we've when we got pride in our lives, we're really good at that convincing ourselves that everything's fine. We don't, we don't need God. We don't, we don't need anything. We, I mean, we're attending church. We're good to go. On the contrary, God fights the proud. He pushes away from the proud, and he proves it right here in this next verse. You know, um, you might think in verse number eight, if before you get to verse number eight, we might be tempted to think that God is just um, against people or that um, God doesn't care. If you really look at for what that says right there, but this, not at all. He, he balances it out. He goes in verse number eight and he proves it to us. He says, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. God desires to be close. He desires that. But it's not an unlimited desire where God can reject his holiness and his righteousness and his goodness and just ignore our sin rooted in our pride and our unwillingness to humble ourselves. He cannot ignore that. God wants to be close to us. If we'll just draw close to him, he'll do that for us. By the way, he took the first step, right? He said, why, why do I have to take the first step? Well, number one, why wouldn't you have to? But again... For you and I to even think something like that would be pride. And that's, that's as you're asking, if you have this devotional book, there's a great list this week that you're going to really be insightful into your life. How to kind of tell maybe some areas that pride has, has invaded and you may not even realized it. But he said, you know, God made the first step. First John 4.19, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. First John is an entire book dedicated to how to know that you know him, how to know that you have eternal life. And this is one of the evidences as he's talking about the love we have for each other, the love we have for God. How can we be saved if we don't actually love God? But don't forget, you only love him because he first loved us. And it's no different here. God says, I will draw an eye to you. If you'll, if you'll humble yourself, I'll come. If you'll put yourself under me, if you'll submit yourself, be subordinate to me, I will offer grace. I resist the proud. I'm against the proud. That's against everything I stand for. He continues on in verse number eight. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Well, we know that earlier in James, he said the double-minded man's unstable in all his ways, right? So this is a theme or a, you know, a common phraseology in James. But it really just talks about making this choice. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Those are two choices. Those are not two things that happen over time. Those are not two things that happen on accident. 
You're not just cleansed on accident. Um, you're not just ceasing from doing and taking your hands and, and doing evil things with them on accident. You're not purifying your heart on accident. And he makes it very evident the problem. The problem is you're double-minded. You won't decide which side you're going to be on. You, maybe, maybe you kind of like the way it was in the world. Some of you have been fantasized about that somehow. You came to Christ, but you're still looking over the fence sometimes. But it does really look good. This coming to Christ thing can be really difficult sometimes, and it can. I don't know. But he says you need to cleanse your hands. You need to purify your heart. You need to choose whose side you're going to be on. Make a choice by intentionally choosing to submit or to put yourself under God, the place of grace. What part of your heart, what part of my heart this morning, what part of my life have we not intentionally submitted to God in? I think when, when I talk about stuff like this, when I think about stuff like this, I have to ask myself really a why question right there. Because inevitably, if I'm honest, there's one, two, three, four, five things that come on the list, right, that I haven't submitted to fully. And we have all different levels of our submission there. Certain things that, that I just really like, and it's harder for me sub, to submit. It's not hard to submit things you don't like, right? It's not hard to submit to eating ice cream. And that's, that's not a hard thing, right? But submitting to eating peas, that's a hard thing right there. Some things are hard, and that's a trite illustration, I understand. Some things are much easier to submit. In. And by the way, it's humanity-wide. Like, some things may be easy for Brother John to submit in, but they're difficult for me to submit in. And vice versa, Brother Clark and, and Mason, they might have different things that are easier or harder. And that's why we fit so well together. When we come together and we're, we're testifying and we're helping each other and lifting each other up, we need each other. We need the Lord. We need what He's done in our hearts. We need to experience ourselves, the grace that He offers to those who will put themselves underneath Him. And we need to hear it from other people as well. Humility knows you have to make a choice. You have to choose. It's not my way. I cannot just choose to not make a choice. By choosing to not make a choice, you just made a choice. And it wasn't for God. We have to understand and be honest about that. If we, choose, if we resist the idea that we have to choose to be on God's side of this, we have just chosen to be on the other side. Lastly, number four. Whoa, time is flying. I'm sorry. Sort of. This, this, this is a good truth here, but we'll wrap this up. Point number four. Humility remains serious about my sin. Verse number nine, he says, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So Pastor James says here, To the lost and to the saved. To the lost, stop with this party lifestyle. Stop this vicious cycle you're in, consumed with pleasing yourself, chasing your own desires. Stop the empty laughs, the laughs that are covering up the emptiness and the despair that is in your heart. Stop this. Come to Jesus and be saved. Submit yourself. And he gives more grace. But he also says to those who have been delivered, those who have been saved from this cycle of death and self and pride, Child of God, regain the seriousness of your sin. 
Regain the seriousness of what you're allowing to reign in your life. Humility remains serious about this. We, we don't make jokes about sin. The Bible says fools make a mock at sin, and we understand that. When you begin to humble yourself, you gain a clear picture of yourself and the sin that, that you battle with, and what it did to our Savior. To the, to the saved, he says, come back to God, humbly agree, confess to God about your wickedness, and he'll come close to you again. You can trust him. You can trust him to do it for you, to give you grace, to give you exactly what you need for his glory. For his glory. Would you bow your head with me and, and take this moment to, if you haven't already been, examine your own heart and your own life as we seek revival. Seek to come back to the place that we once were as a saved person, brought to life, humbled at the depth of our sin, humbled at our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. Where are you at? Are, are you given to this earthly party lifestyle where I'm just looking to have a good time? I'm looking for good feelings. I'm looking to feed the desires of my flesh. I like my comforts. I like to just enjoy life. I don't want to be restricted. Well, it's not that Christianity is not enjoyable in, enjoyable in many senses, but this is the lifestyle of the lost. That that's their goal. Pleasure, comfort, parties, living it up. Is your flesh-driven life a, a road sign? Is it, is it telling you something right now? Telling you something about your eternal destination? Maybe, maybe you're not sure you're saved and today you need to be saved and you would admit that. You would be honest about that. You would humble yourself before God. Or are your worldly pursuits just the result of a sheep that has forgotten what you've been cleansed from? Have you returned to your sin just like the dog returns to its vomit? Somehow forgetting the misery it caused you in the past, the, forgetting the price that Jesus paid to free you from those chains? Child of God, won't you humble yourself this morning? What is the case for you as, as we stand together this morning for a time of invitation? I'm going to invite you, if you need to be saved, let's all stand. If you need to be saved this morning, I'm going to invite you to leave your pew right now. Get to the aisle and head right to the back doors. Brother Tommy and Miss Debbie are back there waiting. They would love to show you from the Word of God how you can be saved this morning. Would you humble yourself and do that? 